Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm giddy. I'm happy because occasionally on this podcast, I get to go back to my roots and I get to interview somebody who is an accomplished comedian who just happens to be somebody who's executive produced a ton of stuff and behind the scenes and in front of the scenes and has gutted it out for a long time. And I'm talking about Tom Rhodes. And I'm laughing because I've known Tom my whole career, but we don't really have the kind of relationship that normal comics and people in my business have. I don't really get a chance to hang out with Tom that much, but he's somebody that I've always admired from afar and a guy who I've always respected. And I've always also one of the guys that in many ways I've studied because I have never really always understood his lane as much as I probably should. And I want to talk about a little bit of what's on my mind, as I always do in these podcasts. Before I do, I think it's important I want to thank you guys again. The podcast lately have been incredible. You guys have been so supportive. Steve Levitan, Jim Jeffries, Marty Kallner, you guys have really sent me some really great comments and letters and emails and FedExes and all kinds of things. So I'm very grateful about that. I also want to thank you guys for going to the Amazon banner and helping the Jewish Boy College Fund on my website. That really is wonderful. It doesn't cost you anything, and it puts money to help them get potato latkes 
and Hanukkah gifts. No, I'm kidding. So as I look at Tom Rhodes, again, I never know what I'm going to say. And I look at this guy. This guy's a strapping man. Great looking guy. Always been great looking. Always had a swagger to him. This guy could be in a wheelchair and he would have a <laughs> swagger. Every time you turn around, he'd always be with the most beautiful women in the world. And he'd say, nah, that's not me. I never, where did you see me that way? I run him. I say, how you doing? He says, I got a house guest coming. I say, oh, a woman? He said, no, I'm married now. As always a person does who takes out their phone. First of all, just so you know, everybody, when somebody says they're married and a girlfriend and they reached for their phone to show you something, basically what that means is mine's better than yours. <laughs> Because no one's going to show you a picture of somebody who looks like me with lipstick. Hey, I just got married. Here's my gal. Yep. Yep. You like that mustache? Good. No, they show you somebody who looks like they're 11 years old and they're a supermodel. His wife is a supermodel. This woman is gorgeous. And he said she's from Holland. And while this podcast is going on, I have my assistants booking my tickets now and getting me all sorts of colored pills to help me through the trip. So anyway, <laughs> but as I look at Tom, I think of this for all of you listening. This is what I've always felt about Tom that I've never, ever shared with Tom. Tom is an artist that has a dual thing happening. He has the darkness, tremendous darkness. He walks in a room, it's like the dark night has come in. But then he smiles and he hugs you or he does that thing where he just has this affable way about him. And then there's the light. And that's the rarest of the rare. Think about it. Think about how many people you know that have an equal amount of darkness and light. I'm not talking about the person who has the full darkness and very little light. Somebody like I hope he doesn't mind looking down and me telling this. But Bill Hicks was the darkness. There was very little light that he showed when he wanted to show it. But on yeah. stage, people knew him as this person like that. And I could go down the list of the people who are very, very dark and very little light, or the people who are very, very light and not as much dark. But when I look at you and I look at your career, I think to myself something that is really special. And so, when you look at what Tom's done, and I will tell you all that after I get through this, I'll give him the proper introduction. He's a guy who's done everything you can imagine. He's done sitcoms. He's traveled all over the world. He's written for the Huffington Post. He's had specials. He's acted in things. He's done stand-up sets. He's headlined all over the world. And as a comedian who has acted, you always want to be in a position where you can find your lane and do what you love, not for 500 people at a time, not for 1,000 people at a time and audiences. You want to reach millions of people. You want to get your message across to millions of people, but not just on radio or in print, but you want your image out there. You want to make your mark that way. That's what everybody wants. But this business has a way of systematically taking the enjoyment out of things for you. And then you have to find different ways to 
channel your energy and figure out how you're going to reach the most people in the way you can under your own control. And I think when I've always looked at you and I've always looked at your career, I've always been really, really, really amazed at your work ethic because I thought to myself all the time from afar, I always thought you were a guy who, there's those comics who spend hours and hours and hours with the obsession of that swagger. The women are always all over the place. There's always women who want to be around somebody who's funny and who has a swagger, who has that darkness. So if you can be a man and you can be funny, you can have the darkness, you're good looking, you have the swagger, and you're smart and worldly, it's incredible. But what happens is, as you know, in our business and in any business, every hour you spend doing something that's not around the business is an hour you take off your business life. And when it comes to comedians and women, and you're married now, when it comes to comedians and women who aren't married, we're not talking about an hour where you're meeting a girl at a comedy club and it's like an hour and it's done. It takes time. It takes time to meet that woman. It takes time to buy her the drink. It takes time to have that winning formula combination that always works when you talk to a woman, those lines that every person has in their mind, probably including me, that actually you think is going to get people more excited about being around you. And then by the time you get the person back to wherever your lair is, you're not just going to go and sleep with that person for 30 minutes. You want to make an impact on that person. So they're like, holy shit, this person really is worthy of the swagger. And then by the time you know it, it's 4.30 in the morning, and she's taking the walk of shame, and your day is fucked because you're sleeping till 12. Then you're getting lunch. And by the time you get your shit together and shower, it's time to go to the comedy club again. And so when I always looked at you, I always thought to myself, how does this guy do it? How is this guy productive <laughs> and he still is able to have that lifestyle? I think to myself, imagine, could this guy be more productive and more forward in what he was doing in his career if he didn't spend all those hours of time doing that? But then the television show came and all these things came and the specials and I'm like, maybe there's just certain people. <laughs> who can navigate these things and make it work, and you just have to accept it. Just like when I work with Chappelle, the kids slept till the crack of two, had lunch, whatever, would go on Conan at four, and seemingly no preparation whatsoever, and he was a genius. He always won. He always made it happen. But when I saw you work in comedy clubs, one of the most amazing things about you is you were imbombable. I never saw you even have an average set. Every set you fucking killed. I'm thinking to myself, Jesus Christ. He's got the women all over him. He's taking all that time. He's killing. He's got a television show. But then what happens in this business, which happens sometimes in a lot of businesses, you get a great gig. Everything comes together the way you want it to be. You're probably a producer on the gig. You're on camera. 
you're getting to write the things you want, you're getting to collaborate, and you're like, hey, I'm doing everything the way I want to do it. Yeah, there's some things I don't really like, but they wrote the checks, and it gets on the air, and then America says, I'm not going to watch that show as much as I'm going to watch these other shows. And then the goal that you've been going for your whole career, which is getting the chance to put your point of view, not just in words, but in moving pictures, is a reality, and then the reality dies. And what happens when the reality dies in television, when your name is on a show and it doesn't go, you are in deep shit because the chances of you getting another show right away or ever at all are slim and none and slim left town. If you can name me one comedian who acted in their own show and had their own name that got another show, I can name one that I know of in 30 years that failed on one show with his name in the title and got another show in his life and his name in the title. And that took six years to happen. And that was Louis C.K. Everybody else, they put their name in the title, and it's tough because the town, they have these elephant-like minds where they don't forget things. And if they look at your names in the title, they look at you as the creator. They look at you as the visionary. They look at you as the person there. And they don't want to give you another shot, even if it's 10 years down the line, seven, eight. You can get a role as an actor if you work hard in a show, but to give you the keys to the kingdom, it's not always there. So when I sit across from Tom, if ever you're a comedian, and believe it or not, Tom is doing an amazing amount of things. He's doing tremendous. But I'd be remiss if I didn't say to you without even getting it from him. If you think that Tom Rhodes thinks that his career is where he wants it to be right now, it's not. And I can tell you something, every single comedian I know that's even the most successful person I know making millions of dollars will tell you the same thing. They all want to do things that require certain people to write checks. Now, when I look at Tom, I think of something that gives me hope and optimism and gets me excited about every comedian I meet who's an actor who's working towards that next thing where they can make their impact on television or on film. And that person I want to mention who has an equal amount of darkness and light, who's had a 45-year career, who is now working on a show where he's probably going to be nominated for an Emmy after not ever getting the call for the past 20 years to do anything in television and film, is Louis Anderson. And Louis Anderson is huggable and lovable like Tom, but he's got a darkness. He's got a character about him and a way about him that doesn't always make people from television networks and studios want to call him and have him act in their shows. So he hasn't gotten the chances that he's wanted to get or needed to get. Which weighs on your mind as an artist? But if you watch Baskets, and if you can deal with the darkness of Baskets, because every character in the show is as dark as dark can be, 
you'll see if you are an artist or any profession that you should never give up in figuring out how you can get your voice on camera and never give up and think that it's never going to happen again because it will happen again if you just keep doing what you're doing that role will come for you and that thing will happen where people will realize how incredibly talented you are on camera not just off camera and so when i think about tom this is a guy who's had a 30-year career gutted it out been all over the world killed himself works hard every day never 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 gives up always kills on stage never takes a shortcut and just like louis anderson is a guy that i know although he's about half the size of louis and <laughs> he's a guy who has great material he has an iconic presence about him and he's a guy i believe is going to be in a position very shortly where he's going to take this country and the world by storm on television and people are going to know what I think I already know and he already knows. So the lesson, if there is any, for anybody out there and things aren't always going exactly your way, make your own breaks. Do whatever you have to do. Find different lanes to get your voice out there. Find different ways to be in a position to show people how great you are. And the accumulation of all those things will take you to a place where I can guarantee you, you will have a phenomenal career like Tom Rhodes. Here we go in three, two. They ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.
Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, it will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary, I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. All right, I'm going to give you the proper introduction. This is a long bio. Feel free to recline. Tom Rhodes is a world-traveling comedian who is now celebrating his 30th year as a stand-up comedian. The New York Times described him as a mostly natural intellect, with a knack for reporting the harsh realities of life with a dark and absurdly optimistic cynicism. Rhodes was born in Washington, D.C., and his family moved to Florida in January of 1980. His father, David, was a decorated Vietnam War veteran, and in 1968 he was selling insurance and driving a cab in D.C. when he enlisted in the Army for U.S. Army Flight School. Ironically, his father was an atheist, and his mother was a very religious person, and I think that helped to shape him in the early years of his life. An adventurer forging his own path, Rhodes has built a career that not only includes stand-up comedy specials, a sitcom, a travel show, a late-night talk show, numerous live CDs and DVDs, and his critically acclaimed podcast, Tom Rhodes Radio as well as being a travel writer for the Huffington Post. Fresh from releasing his new hour special, Light Swede Crude, on Netflix, Rhodes has had a long, raucous career covering every corner of the globe. His three half-hour stand-up specials include two Comedy Central Presents and Raw, recorded in Stockholm for Swedish television. At 22, Tom moved to San Francisco with the sole purpose of growing and strengthening his comedy in the city he referred to as the Jerusalem of stand-up comedy. There was an exciting array of comedians living and performing at that time, Margaret Cho, Mark Maron, Patton Oswalt, and Greg Proops, to name a few. 
Tom quickly became a regular at the comedy giants of the city, the Punchline, the Improv, and Cobbs. Along with meeting many people that would later become lifelong friends, Tom got to open concerts there for James Brown and the Everly Brothers while in San Francisco. Tom also got notice of comedy programs and began appearing on shows like An Evening at the Improv, Comic Strip Live, Caroline's Comedy Hour, and MTV's Half Hour Comedy. It was an appearance on Comedy Central's Two Drink Minimum that led Tom to performing more interstitials for Comedy Central, and he became the first comedian ever to sign a one-year development deal with that network. That led to his one-hour special, Viva Vietnam, a comedy travel log to the newly opened country, Vietnam, as a heartfelt tribute to his father and the other veterans who served. In 1995, Tom performed at the first-ever HBO Aspen Arts Comedy Festival and at the Montreal International Comedy Festival. In Montreal, Tom was discovered by NBC talent scouts, and the network offered him his own development deal to create his own sitcom, which later became Mr. Rhodes on NBC. In 1996, Tom moved from San Francisco to Los Angeles to create the sitcom with his friend, comedy writer Mark Brazil. The sitcom Mr. Rhodes aired for a full season on the NBC network. When the sitcom ended, Tom moved to New York City to focus on his first true love of stand-up comedy, and he got to fulfill the promise that he made to himself that he would one day live in New York City with style. For two years, Tom had his own late-night talk show on Dutch television and traveled the world as a TV presenter on the Dutch travel program Joran Travel. Tom also performed for the second time in Montreal, at the International Comedy Festival as well. His latest live recording is a double CD, Colossus of Me, released in 2012. In 2009, LaughSpin.com named his DVD, Road Scholar, the number one comedy DVD of 2009. As a featured travel writer for Huffington Post, his travel story, A Tragedy, A Miracle, and A Brawl, Welcome to Ireland got awarded by the Huffington Post one of the top 10 best travel stories of 2011. His podcast, Tom Rhodes Radio, was named one of the top 10 best podcasts of 2011 by Matador Network and was praised as the best newcomer in the Onion AVs Club. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, the man, the myth, the legend, a guy I'm very excited about, Tom Rhodes. Very Shalom, amigo. How are you? I'm good. I can't believe you're still awake after the cold open. Oh no, that was <laughs> that was. Um, I I felt like you were um, buttering my vegetables. Buttering your vegetables. I've never heard that before. That's a good expression. I think I told it how I perceive it to be. Tell me that I'm wrong. Uh, which aspect? Am I wrong? Are you the kind of artist who's 100% happy with where he is in his career? Or are you the kind of artist who's always driven and never fully satisfied and wants more? You can never be satisfied. You can never say, I have this completely figured out, especially as a comedian. You know, um, yeah, I always find it remarkable, like Jerry Seinfeld, he does an hour and then he keeps it for 16 years. <laughs> You know, and he doesn't retire his material. I mean, I, you know, everybody loves Jerry Seinfeld. He's, you know, adored the world over. But meanwhile, Jim Jeffries is one minute and he doesn't even want to do it anymore on television. I think the way comedy is now, there's a lot of guys that are bringing out specials every year, every two years. 
So um, I, I think the competition's never been tougher. Yeah, so what are you satisfied with in your career? And what are you not satisfied with? What I always think, what's fascinating to me, again, one of the great parts, and I made a joke about it, and I'm sorry. When you showed me the picture of your wife, it's like when you're a guy and you're at a certain point in your life and you know that there's somebody who loves you and you come home every day and you wake up every day and there's somebody who has committed their life to you. A woman doesn't get married to a guy because she wants to commit to a year or two years or three years. She's committed to a lifelong situation and sometimes it doesn't work out. But the intention in the beginning is that's what it is. So when I sit across from you, what's always great when you're with somebody is when they have one side of their life all set. That's a great thing because that grounds you and you know that you're going to be okay on that side. And it's comforting and it gives you like a safety blanket. So then when you're going into your career, you can hope to find those kind of relationships along the way with people who believe in you as much as your wife believes in you. And that's what you look for, and that's the example. And that's why so many comedians who don't have girlfriends and don't have wives, if you notice, they're the ones that are the most unraveled and they just don't necessarily know where their future is because they got a double-sided thing where they don't have anybody in their life where they trust and who cares about them. Right, nobody to tell them when they're acting like an asshole or something. That's right. Uh, you know, I haven't seen you in many years. Um, my life has gone through so many changes um, just in the last few years, and I never thought I would get married. And my wife um, is from Holland. She's a photographer. She's, um, I didn't live anywhere for 10 years. I put everything into storage 10 years ago, and I just traveled the world. Uh, I would do six months of the year performing out of the United States. Last year, I did five months in Europe, a month in Asia, and then six months all over the States. Uh, my wife's been traveling with me for eight years. And, you know, you asked me, what am I satisfied about? I think the ways that you can be uh, an enterprising uh, little art-making factory now. And my wife and I, uh, you know, I put out the, my podcast once a week. I'm putting out these knowledge nugget videos every Friday, uh, little factoids, just things I know. Uh, she films them, and um, there's just, you know, I'm making travel videos. I'm just constantly creating, and then I'm trying to come up with my uh, next hour so I can film another special. And um, like I said, I never thought I would get married. My wife, um, uh, it wasn't like a man bragging of uh hey look at this hot young thing it was just i, I know. wanted to I'm show just, you i'm uh, just trying to, i'm just <clears throat> i'm just trying to use my ball busting side of, I, I didn't mean to insult you by doing no, that no 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 i'm 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 new back to los angeles so i forget how uh a lot of people operate in show business you know so uh um, what's your perception of how people operate in show business I don't know, a lot of um, uh, people talking a lot of shit and uh, a lot of uh, braggarts and braggadocios. 
So I wasn't like I didn't want I, I didn't want you to think like I was bragging. You know? No. I was you're like, not, hey, there's a woman not, I love and I married. You're not bragging. <laughs> I'm so excited for you. I'm so happy. It gets me emotional because it's like everybody wants the life. Everybody wants to know that there's somebody in their corner that loves them and that cares about them. And when you see somebody you've known for a long time and they find that, it's amazing. So believe me, I'm very, very excited for you. I'm very happy. And she's great. She loves comedy. She loves traveling. And um, she loves hanging out with comedians. And she's developed a, a, a comedic analytical mind. So I'm constantly writing new jokes and trying to come up with new material. And she's a great editor to say, no, that's, you can do better than that. Or, you know, dig deeper. That's a great untouched premise. They say a woman knows within five minutes of meeting a man if she's going to be with the guy. Did she know? No, not at all. You know, I, I lived in Amsterdam for five years. And I had a late night talk show on Dutch television for three years in this country where I don't even speak the language. So I was doing a theater tour of Holland a few years after my television run there because uh, I, I adore the Netherlands. And my wife was running an event for expatriates that live and work in The Hague. I met her in The Hague. And Could you define The Hague for the people who aren't worldwide travelers like you? Uh, the Hague is where the War Crimes Tribunal is located, and what better place to start a love story? <laughs> <laughs> Would you ask her to stop uh, <laughs> complaining to me? So it actually worked against me that I had been on television because um, Dutch people are unimpressed with celebrity. I found that they're unimpressed with somebody asking for a doggy bag, too. They do not do doggy bags. <laughs> they do not do doggy bags. They, yeah, uh, which is weird. But yeah, they find that insulting. There's odd things about Dutch culture. And that was me doing the late night talk show was I was a foreigner experiencing Dutch culture. So my wife, uh, actually, when I, when I met her, she didn't, she thought I was some shallow television personality. And she Googled me afterwards and on my website, I have this happiness list. I, uh, all these things that make me happy. So she read it and she thought that I might have some substance and that she might have uh, judged me incorrectly. So she sent me a nice email and we made a uh, date to have coffee. Would you mind telling our audience before you go into that story? Uh -huh. Tell us five things that she might have read that make Tom Rhodes happy. Uh, I mean, there's odd things on there. Traveling makes me happy. Uh, and then on that list, which I wrote, I started to write it the summer before September 11th. And then it was after September 11th that made me put it on my website for us, for you to be reminded of little things in life that make you happy. So on there are, you know, ping pong, tangerine, nipples like pencil erasers, uh, there, there's all kinds of weird things and there's poetic things. There's funny things, you know, it's a wide range of, uh, just the small mundane little details in life, you know? Got it. Okay. Keep going. I'm sorry. Okay. So, uh, we made a date. We, uh, we had coffee, uh, we hit it off and then, uh, we made a date. Uh, I took her to the zoo. And uh, I thought I was being smooth. I 
said uh, at one point in the day, trying to show how sensitive I am. I go, uh, it's a shame they have to live like this. <laughs> and she goes, uh, no, not at all. Actually, they're much safer uh, here than they are in their natural environment. And uh, just totally shot that clay pigeon out of the sky. <laughs> so, I mean, she's smart, she's sassy, and doesn't take any shit. And she's, she's very funny on, in her own right. And then she's also a very artistic person. Um, she's a photographer, and I like that. I think the women that I've, I was involved with in my life made me the man that I am today. But I, always, I, I was always attracted to intelligent women more than anything, you know, like you can have intelligent conversations is where the best material comes from. And if you're, you know, if you're with some dumb whore, you're, you're not going to be thinking of lofty thoughts that enlighten humanity. Got it. I just never saw you with somebody who looked like Toadie Fields who was intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to break out the Toadie Fields Tody reference. Fields reference. Wow. Listen, I'm ancient. Let me, um, she, let, me, let me match you with Yvonne Gulligan. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. You can't go wrong with the name Gulligan. <laughs> he walked in with some Yvonne Gulligan looking woman. <laughs> so another thing that's interesting about you is that and again, for the people listening, when you talk to most performers, they're like, hey, I did Crackers in Indianapolis. I went up and I did the improv at Brea, and then I came down and I did Caroline's in New York. They don't talk about traveling and doing shows all over the world. Most artists wouldn't even know how to do that, wouldn't even know how to figure out how to do shows all over the world. How was that figured out for you? Was it your own, like, you know, before you ever did a show, let's say, in another country, did you think to yourself, I want to be the kind of guy who works for eight or ten years and not have a home and just go to these places? That's what I want to do and I want to work. And who facilitated that for you? Because to be honest with you, most agents who are in the personal appearance world could not facilitate that for you well. Yeah, they couldn't do it. So how did you do it? After my sitcom finished, well, leading up to the sitcom, my career, when I started out in Florida, I wanted to play all the cities in America. And then I, after living in San Francisco, I got relatively hot and I was signed to Comedy Central. I was the first development deal in Comedy Central's history. So I became like the face of the network for a couple of years. So me being on Comedy Central continuously led to NBC discovering me in Montreal. For the audience, most development deals and networks, they pay you an amount of money for the year, and they own you, and they normally develop a sitcom for you. Now, but when you're on a cable channel that does a lot of different things, they might say in the deal, we're doing a development deal for you. We're paying this amount to you. This amount of it is applicable to anything you do on the network. Let's just pretend that Tom got $100,000. I'm not saying he did. I'm not saying it was more or less. Let's pretend he got $100,000. So a lot of times on these contracts, they'll try to do, they'll try to make it all applicable, 100%. But normally, if you have a good lawyer, or agent, or manager, they'll at least try to make it 50-50 or nothing. But let's pretend it was 50-50. So what this means is that 
the first $50,000 of things that Tom would do on the network, he wouldn't get paid for them because he already got paid for them. So a lot of times networks like that would say, hey, we're going to have you do these interstitials for us. You're going to do three days at work and you're going to do these two-minute interstitials. The interstitials that I did for Comedy Central put me on the map. Yes. They were great. I filmed two different series of them. They filmed my jokes like rock videos. The first ones were in a jail cell. I don't know if you remember that. Yes, I do. Comedy Central, where hot new comedians do time. And I have like a smoke machine. They were great. And then I got to do another series of 10 interstitials that we filmed on the docks in New York City. As a young comedian, they saw me, they loved my material, and they wanted to shoot my jokes. The interstitial thing, I'm surprised, didn't take off more because they filmed the jokes like a rock video, and then they put it into the, the uh, interspersed it with the commercial breaks. The first ones we did in the, those catacomb jail in New York City, which was a really frightening place to go to, and there was one section that was all blocked off with some empty jail cells. But we had to walk through an area where you could see really tough customers behind bars. And, uh, I, you know, I was just there to film something, and I was thrilled to get out of there at the end of the day. <laughs> did you have an um, agent or a manager at the time? Or did Dave Becky, things... yeah. So he was there at the beginning. He was with you from the very beginning. Yeah, and I'm, I'm still with Dave. I'm his first client that he ever had, as far as I know. I met Dave when he was uh, managing the San Diego Improv. And I got in from coming from the East Coast. I had sent him a cassette tape in the mail. And on one side, it had me doing a half hour. I was only a middle act at the time. It was me doing a half hour on side A. And on side B was the Pixies Surfer Rosa. And I said, and I had no idea that he was like a, even a music lover. But I just wrote him a nice little charming note that I'd love to play your club. And if you don't like my comedy, there's some music on side B that you might enjoy. So, and it turns out, you know, he was a Pixies fan. And this was nobody, you know, 60 people in the world knew who the Pixies were when Surfer Rosa came out. So, you know, when I came out, um, we've had a relationship ever since then. It's fantastic. And can I just give Dave a plug? Yeah, sure. So for those of you who are not in the world of stand-up comedy, Dave Becky is a tremendous manager of comedic talent. He started off as a comedy club manager. And then where I first met Dave, he was an assistant in the pit at Messina Baker Miller, which was Rick Messina and Richard Baker, who represented Tim Allen and Drew Carey. And Jimmy Miller at the time was a partner with them, who represented Jim Carey with a partnership with another person in another office, Eric Gold. And Dave was in the pit with Mia Apatow, Judd Apatow's sister, and also with Julie Wixon, who is now Julie Darmody, who is a really great manager as well. And Dave has gone on and has had like a 25, 30-year career as well as a manager. And I've known him from the very beginning, and he's tremendous. And he works with everybody from Kevin Hart to Louis C.K. to a list that goes on and on of some extraordinary, extraordinary people. And the fact that you have that relationship over that much time that also inspires me because I always think to myself, how does somebody keep a relationship like a marriage for that long? And we talked about your personal life, eight years with this woman. And you also, in your professional life, you have somebody in your life who believes in you, who's been there for God knows 25 or 30 years. 
So on both sides of your life, you have that system where it's there. So you're very, very fortunate in the sense that you have on both sides of the ball, you have greatness and people love you and care about you. So that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Becky's an amazing guy. We've had our, you know, uh, it's been, uh, it's, he's a quality human being. When you're a manager and you're representing people, life is cyclical and things that happen with artists are cyclical. And so, for instance, when Tom had his show on the air, Louis C.K. was probably writing on Conan's show. Kevin Hart, if he was around doing comedy then, was probably doing the open mics. And these people are the greatest level of people in the business. I guess what I'm asking is, when you were doing your television show, those people probably were looking up saying, okay, well, how can I get to the level where I have my own television show? And then as an artist, sometimes a television show goes away and there's other things and then another client has something going. When you are an artist on a roster, whether it's with an agency or a management company, because I don't even know the answer to this and I've never asked this question, what goes through your mind at the different periods when you are doing your thing and you're running into those people who you know are brilliant, but they haven't had that opportunity yet, and you're the guy who they're looking towards? And then what's the feeling as an artist when you're part of a group on a roster where then you see people getting to a certain level and you're trying to gain the kind of attention from your manager or agent that you had when you had the television show? What are the things that go through your mind as an artist? Well, I think when somebody, a comedian, gets in a position like a television show or a movie, I think all eyes are on him. And people are like, you know, in, in a cautionary way, uh, seeing what steps they take. Like you mentioned Louis C.K. I remember that Louis, lucky Louis, not working out. And I was like, wow, what's going to happen to him now? And then the guy rebounds with one of the most brilliant comedy shows in the history of television. So like, I mean, if you're in your profession, whatever it is, you got to, you know, study the masters and learn from them and see what steps people are taking. I think it's always important to do your own thing. I mean, Comedy Central, when I was working for them, was great. They had no signature shows. So I got to do basically whatever I wanted. I felt like a junior filmmaker. And they sent me to cover the Super Bowl and the Dream Team and all these ridiculously wonderful uh, events. And then uh, Bill Clinton had lifted the travel ban on v Vietnam, the way Obama just lifted for Cuba. So my father had fought in Vietnam, and I pitched Comedy Central this show where I would go to Vietnam. And I made this hour special, Viva Vietnam, because my dad had flown helicopters there, and the topic was dear to me. And that kind of put me on the map for American television. It got great write-ups and stuff. And then shortly thereafter, I got this deal with NBC and the sitcom. You know, in retrospect, I wish I'd have stayed at Comedy Central. It was this young network. They let me do whatever I wanted. It was great. And I, I loved the people there like family. The NBC sitcom turned out to be nothing like I expected it to be. And I had no control over it whatsoever. It was an interesting situation that now looking back on it, I'm so grateful that that show didn't last. It would have been the worst thing in the world for me to be this false identity 
that they were forcing onto me of the sitcom. And the things that happened after that made me who I am today. And I, I, I looked at the money that I had as my NBC artist grant. So I moved to New York City, back to New York City, because I had lived there when I was 20, like a dog. And I always swore if I ever had any money, I'd live in New York with style. I just want to share one of the toughest things that an artist has to deal with is when there's a group of people that believe in him and love him, but they're not at the highest level like Comedy Central was back then. And so you have a group of people that really believe in you, care about you, have invested in you, have given you the keys to the kingdom. And then it's like, again, if you're married and you're in Las Vegas and there's a knock on the door and you open it up and there's a supermodel there and who says, uh, listen, uh, I'm here and you can do whatever you want with me and I'm here as long as you want. And there's guys who'll be like, no, thank you. I'm happily married. I know the person I'm married to works in the coal mine, but I'm very happy. I know you're that. And there's the other person who an hour later has their ankles in two different zip codes. And then there's the person who says, come on in, we'll have a conversation, a cup of coffee, but then you're going to go. And as an artist, you run into these situations all the time because you're trying to get your career to the next level. And like Tom, he had a group that believed in him, but NBC comes calling and that's like the 800-pound gorilla. And if they believe in you, they write big checks and they offer you the world. We're going to develop for you. We're going to have you find the choice of your own showrunner. Hey, Tommy, we're going to give you everything you want. It's your voice. It's your vision. Ah, we're going to let you go like Comedy Central did. And then you get in and things happen. So what I want Tom to do, if he'll oblige me, could you go through the process and the machinations from when you were offered the deal to when the show went on the air and the things that as a comic, when you get offered that, what happens that really, as I say, systematically <clears throat> takes the enjoyment out of the business, no matter how exciting it is? The best advice I could give to any comedian who has a development deal to make his own television show is when they tell you you're a fish out of water, punch <laughs> them in their face. Fish need water to live. That's the, that's the number one piece of advice for anyone who might ever have their own sitcom. You're a fish out of water. That's what everybody kept saying. So I, now I wish I would have punched everyone who said that. Um, have you ever punched anyone in the face? Yes, but not in a very long time. Okay. Yeah. Until today. Oh, no, I adore you, Barry. Um, <laughs> well, that means a lot. I adore you. Yeah. Uh, and it's great because we've never worked together. We've always been friends. Never, so there, never worked there's together. There's never been any reason to be mad at you. <laughs> I never called you a fish out You're going to come to the podcast. Yeah. You're going to be a fish out of water. You know, that sitcom thing, it doesn't take up too much of my mental capacity thinking about it. But it did change my life forever. I was pretty hot on Comedy Central. You know, I had long hair and I was skinny. And so I get this development deal and I moved to Los Angeles because I had lived in San Francisco for seven years. And I wanted to originally be a public defender lawyer, the voice of the voiceless. I was never that crazy about sitcoms to begin with. 
you know, it's funny because the reason I grew my hair long in the first place, I mean, I was always obsessed with Native Americans, Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull and Osceola and um, Hero of the Seminole Tribe. I had a kindred spirit with you because I had long hair yeah, down, in said, my, that's right. yeah. down in my ass. And I looked like the crying Indian with the trash commercial. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's hilarious. You would uh, look like the crying Indian when uh, you would see the attendance at the Boston Comedy Club. <laughs> um, so when I started in the mid-80s, you know, I was 17 years old. And it seemed like there was a lot of bland, straight white guy comedy back then. Everybody wanted a sitcom. Everybody wanted to be Jerry Seinfeld. So you had these really generic white guys with their suit coat and rolled up sleeves and the bolo tie. And um, I, I never wanted a sitcom. So that's why I grew my hair. I moved to San Francisco. I just wanted to be a stand-up comedian. So it's interesting that I ended up getting a deal. And, you know, I always loved Barney Miller. I thought it was really gritty with the, you know, the, the criminals coming in and, the, the, you know, the grittiness of it. So... I wanted to be a public defender lawyer. I thought that would be a cool concept. In Montreal, there was a bidding war between NBC, Fox, and HBO. HBO was just offering a special. Fox had offered more money. I grew up worshiping stand-up comedy, and NBC, to me, was American comedy. Saturday Night Live, Johnny Carson, David Letterman, Cheers, Cosby Show, every great classic American show. So it was a no-brainer. NBC could have been offering the least amount of money. I probably would have went with them. And at the time, they were the New York Yankees. Was Warren Littlefield the guy? He was the guy at the time. They gave me uh, a deal straight out of Montreal. Shelley McCrory brought me to the network. I, I, I Another beautiful, intelligent woman. Love her as a human being. It's, and I loved and respected her so much, it hurt my heart that this show did not work out because I think I was the first show that she had brought to the network. NBC was always great to me. Warren Littlefield was always great to me. At the time, NBC and Universal had not married. So the show was made at Universal. And NBC, throughout the whole process, they had the same feeling I did. The show needs more Tom. The show needs more Tom. That's all I ever heard from, we need more of Tom's personality. Who was the so, showrunner you chose? Uh, Peter Noah. Peter, no, okay. So uh, I felt like NBC and Shelley McCrory and Warren Littlefield were looking out for me uh, more than anybody. And they, uh, I think, shared my frustrations that the show wasn't uh, as much me as it could have been. So at one point in the development of the show, they said, I heard from someone in my management, not Dave Becky, that they, NBC had had a lawyer show fail, and could you make Tom a teacher? So, uh, you know, it seemed like an idea I could run with, and at the time, it was not known that that same year, five other teacher shows were going to come out. So I should have stuck to my guns to begin with and done the public defender lawyer show and walked away from it if it didn't happen. Um, the teacher show idea, it started out great. They took four jokes of mine for the pilot. Everybody loved the pilot. It gets made into a series. 
I'm an English teacher in a stuffy prep school. It was like Dead Poets Society. So one of the first, second or third episode, I bring Charles Bukowski, my favorite writer, to the school. He's drunk, he vomits, he's flirting with the kids. The character's name was Buck Pulaski, played by Brian Doyle Murray. But it was supposed to be Charles Bukowski. Shortly thereafter, the show, the focus became, they brought in older students to be the kids. The focus became all about the students. I was the second banana on my own show, and I never got anything funny to do. I just gave nice advice to the kids. And it was very frustrating. And the writing on the show was incredibly weak because we did 18 episodes, and there were, I think, I I'm, how many hol if it, if a show starts doing a lot of holiday episodes, they've run out of ideas, and you can't do holiday episodes on the first season. We did a, a Valentine show, a, a, a Halloween show, a Thanksgiving episode. We did a Christmas episode because everybody spends Christmas with their English teacher, <laughs> right? Didn't everyone go to go on a skiing trip with their English teacher? I mean, it was it, it was beyond frustrating. So normally when you're developing and you're doing a deal for a television show, when you're a young artist, you don't have as much power. And at the time, Dave was a young manager too. He was brand new. And so you don't have necessarily the experience of how to deal with things. When I do deals and when Dave does deals, you always try to be in a situation where you don't do the deal unless your artist can be an executive producer and you can be an executive producer as a manager so that you can have two votes in the system because the executive producer credit is the highest credit in television. But a lot of times these people want to keep you out and keep you out of the creative mix. And a lot of times, for the most part, those shows never work because the artist gets frustrated the manager's frustrated because he can't get on the calls. He can't be on anything. When he goes to the set, he doesn't have anything to say. He doesn't have a voice. And the artist doesn't have a voice. So this show, I presume that you weren't an executive producer and Dave wasn't an executive producer. No, and I would walk into the writer's room and they would act like I was the enemy. Yeah. Everyone would go completely silent. And I would walk in. I, I would talk to Peter Noah and say, you know, this isn't representing who I am as a person. And I, I, I say, you know, every time anyone I ever considered a hero could not be topped. All my heroes were comedians. You know, the way, you know, other kids were into sports or music. You know, I grew up obsessed with stand-up comedy. And anybody I ever considered a hero could not be topped by uh, a, a put-down. They had a, they had a, a, a sharper comeback line. And most comedians are that way. That's how we operate. Somebody yells something in the club, pow, pow, you shoot them down. So in the script, it would say, it was always, and I had the long hair. So Jesus Christ, the hair jokes were uh, never ending. There would be like five or six hair jokes. Hey, Fabio. Hey, cream rinse. Hey, uh, the, the, the dude that used to play the flute, what the hell, Yanni or whatever. And then it would, in the script, it would say, Tom reacts. And I would go talk to Peter No and say, you know, how many times can I shrug? Somebody says something shitty to me and I just go, <laughs> you know, that's not how I am in real life. You say something to me, I am going to 
verbally rip your jugular vein out and you will be eviscerated by my uh, comedic wit, like Oscar Wilde or Mark Twain, you know? So let's put the true serum in your veins, if okay. you don't mind. Okay, so Peter Noah, he's got the same goal you do. He wants to win. He wants to have a show on that's on seven years. He wants to go to syndication. He wants to be respected. Every writer on the staff, it's like a marriage. They don't want to have one and out. They want to have a steady thing where they're respected, they do great work, and everything's the way it is. The network, they don't want to have a show that's one and done. So what's your part in the fact that in the beginning, everybody's saying, we want more Tom, we want more Tom, we want more Tom. And at the end, they say, we want less Tom, we want less Tom, we want less Tom. If you had to put the true serum in your veins and be totally gutted out with yourself and gut yourself like a fish, what's your part in the change in philosophy? In the way the show changed? Yes. I think I was too trusting of, of other people. I thought they had it figured out. I mean, Peter Noah had a, sh a few shows that didn't work out before this one. So I think it would have been in his best interest to have worked with me a little bit more. And this cast was incredible. I mean, the best thing I got out of that show is friendships. Stephen Tobolowsky played the principal. And I'm still great friends with Stephen Tobolowsky. His podcast is brilliant. You ever heard the Tobolowsky Files? No. Start with a good day at Auschwitz. His, he's such a brilliant storyteller. And one of the greatest American comedic actors of all time. His, you know, what, he's on Silicon Valley now. He was on Californication. The guy, he's been in countless films. He was Ned Ryerson in Groundhog's Day. We talk all the time. He comes to see me. I'll go eat at his house. He's one of the, uh, the best friends I've ever made in show business. Ron Glass, I made great friends with him. He was my nemesis on the show. Like, I'm, uh, uh, I'm supposed to act like this is the guy that, that, I, that, that I dislike on the show. And in, in reality, you know, we got along uh, swimmingly. And uh, Sean Weiss, uh, uh, still good friends with him. The, there was so many great actors were on the show. Lindsay Sloan has done a lot of great work in films. Jensen Ackles uh, was one of the students. He's, uh, he's on that show, Heroes. I, I, I saw in Wall Street Journal not too long ago, he sold his property in Maui for $27 million. <laughs> so, I mean, like, they had the tools, you know. This was an incredible cast. And um, I, I, I think uh, no matter what the premise Teacher, lawyer, uh, you know, uh, dog shit picker upper with that cast could have worked. Anything could have worked had the writing been a little more ambitious and not, uh, oh, yeah, what we need this first season is another holiday episode. <laughs> you know, uh, I trusted people. I, I did feel like NBC was looking out for me. And, and like I said, I, I, I loved Shelly McCrory and, and Warren Littlefield treated me wonderfully, and I, I felt like they had the same concerns I did. What, why is this show, we hired this great comedian who had great jokes, why isn't that what we're getting in the, 
in the scripts, you know. Um, I was living on top of the Hollywood Hills um, with a beautiful actress, and all we did was walk around naked drinking wine from goblets. A beautiful, intelligent actress. Yeah, but when the show ended, uh, uh, apparently I, w I was uh, less cute without a sitcom than I was with one. Anyway, just everything seemed to go to shit after that show finished. Now talk know? about that, because this is part of this podcast, is the highs and the lows. When the faucet of showbiz love turns off, it turns off tight. So, uh, you know, happened? I had gone from, you know, a few years of everyone wanting to be my friend and uh, do things with me to whatever. I mean, there's, like I said, many years have passed and my life would not have turned out the way it did if that show would have lasted. I think that would have been, I would have crawled up my own ass and not been the full complete developed human being that I am today. So you would have turned into Mark Curry. His show wasn't, how long was his show on? Syndication. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I, don't know, I guess, but it was a show that he acknowledges because Mark Curry, as you know, and as most comedians who do listen to this podcast, if you ever saw Mark Curry do stand up before any television, one of the greatest stand up comedians you would ever see six foot nine from Oakland, great material. Amazing. Even to this day, his comedy, when people see him, they're like, holy shit, that was amazing. Who hasn't seen him? Because hanging with Mr. Cooper wasn't who he was. It was a fish. maybe Out of water. water. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and that's the way that show was sold to me, was you're a fish out of water. You're a rebel, renegade English teacher in a stuffy prep school. So never go with the fish out of water, I say. Got it. So talk about when the faucet shuts off. When the now, faucet now, shut now, off, now I go, took go, my NBC artist grant, and I moved to New York City to focus on stand-up comedy. And what I started to do was invest in trips to London because I wanted to— uh, Greg Proops and Rich Hall are old good friends of mine, and they worked there, and they thought I— uh, they thought— intelligent Americans would do well there. And, and it was great to go to England because nobody knew about my sitcom that didn't work out, and they just knew me as a stand-up comedian. So once I got in with London, that was the key to the international circuits for me. And I did it smartly. My friends told me, you know, you do the peripheral clubs first before you go to the best rooms. Get your sea legs first. So I got in with London, uh, the comedy store and all the best clubs there. And then that led to gigs all over Europe and then gigs in Australia, Asia, all over the world. And I've been doing the international circuits since then. And then uh, in 99, I played in Amsterdam. I met a Dutch girl, not the woman that I married. And I fell in love and I moved to Amsterdam. Because I was doing half the year outside of the United States anyway. And I was, I was spending three or four months a year playing all over Europe and, and doing London just, you know, constantly. So uh, when I was first moved to Amsterdam, I was doing London every other weekend. So that was great, just constantly flying back and forth. You put a real interesting perspective on things, not only for me, but for the audience. When your car breaks down and you take it to the mechanic and they do an amazing job fixing it and you get the bill and or whatever the bill is, it stings, but you still pay it, but it's like, ugh. when you're an artist and you're working with a manager, 
and they're deeply entrenched in helping put the sitcom together and everything's working out. Then the faucet turns off, and you sort of go off to London and do your thing, and then people start calling you to do this gig, this gig, and this gig. And before you know it, you have this amazing international career of things that are happening for you that your manager isn't actually as involved in as the other stuff. How does an artist feel when they're writing those checks? Does it sting when you're sending commission to your manager who's been with you on something that gutting it out in the United States and then you're getting a call from Joe Washington in Australia, could you come play Melbourne and hear Dave look this over? Because you know how certain artists, they say, oh, God, it stings to write the checks. And other artists is like, I really feel great writing these checks. What does it feel like for an artist? No, I mean, um, you, you know, Dave Becky's always been a great friend, aside from being a manager. And he's always managed the best comedians in the business. I, you can't blame your manager for everything. You have to, you know, things didn't work out. I... Uh, I, I was angry at humanity and show business after that thing. Uh, but I, 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 I am on a bigger life adventure. And so, like I said, it, I, it, I didn't set out to make a stand-up a, a sitcom. I set out to be the greatest stand-up comedian alive. So, you know, yes, that hurt my feelings, but I was on to bigger adventures. And like I keep saying, I looked at that money as my NBC artist grant I went to New York City to focus on comedy, and then I started. Uh, I, I had a lot of money when I finished, and I started taking these trips to London and systematically uh, got in over there, which led to the greatest life imaginable that not many people uh, or American comedians ever get to experience. So I moved to Amsterdam for this girl. The relationship didn't work out. I was just about to move back to the United States when these people from this Dutch television network saw me performing at uh, this comedy club in Amsterdam, Tumler, greatest name for a comedy club ever. It's a, it's a Yiddish word for traveling merrymaker. Back in the European Jewish ghettos, they had Tumlers, right? That's right. What a great, that's what we are. We're traveling merrymakers. So... These Dutch television executives saw me performing at Tumler in Amsterdam, and they were looking for an American to host a late-night talk show, like David Letterman. So I got the job, and I got to... Were you the executive producer on that show? No, no. So you didn't have the control on that show either? No, but I had total freedom, and I could be, um, I could be myself, and I could write. It was only on once a week. We would film two episodes a week, so I'd every, have every other week off. What kind of guests to did do you stand have on up? the show? Mostly Dutch celebrities, but we had um, uh, Jack Black and Tenacious D came on, mm -hmm. and I gave them a tour of Amsterdam. It's on YouTube if you ever want to see it. It's delightful. Um, had Steve-O from Jackass mm -hmm. on. Uh, there's no censorship on Dutch television. You can say anything. You can show anything. The only censorship on Dutch television is you cannot endorse products. You could say you like beer. You can't say you like Heineken because that's specifically endorsing a brand. So um, Steve-O couldn't believe there's no censorship on Dutch television. 
he asked for a stapler, dropped his pants, and stapled his ball sack to his thigh. And Dutch television, they got a close-up of it. You could see the blood spurt and the little uh, metal prong holding his nasty nutsack to his thigh. Um, I did have that clip on YouTube, but um, the YouTube policy uh, made me take it down. Because... Uh, Apparently, and, and, and he has a, a, a very unattractive uh, genitalia. So, uh, so even if they didn't have the <laughs> whatever, I mean, but so, so, you know, I mean, I grew up uh, watching Johnny Carson and to be that guy coming out from behind the big velvet curtain in the $3,000 suit, standing on the X, giving the monologue. It was, I mean, and then I'm, and then I'm living in Amsterdam. And how long did that know? last? So that was on for uh, two years, which was three seasons in Dutch television. And then if that was not fortuitous enough, when that ended, the same network let me be a presenter on a travel program. So I got to do one year. I was on three years total on television in Holland. And uh, the last year I was doing a travel show and I did a highlight on St. Petersburg, Russia. I did the Champagne region of France. I did the uh, eastern coastal beaches of France. I uh, did another one on uh, Peru. That was my favorite trip I've ever taken in my life, Peru. Uh, I did the Dutch Caribbean, uh, Liverpool, Antwerp. Uh, it, it was an incredible experience. I had this magical... And Dutch people are very hard to get to know. Dutch people are very stoic. So... The fact that I was on television, it felt like people knew me there. I'd walk around the, like there was really cute elements to the late night talk show where I was a foreigner experiencing Dutch culture. And they had this one segment where uh, it was called the word of the day. And they would try and, because Dutch is a difficult language. So they would teach me one word at a time. And a girl in a bikini would come out with a Dutch word on a card. It was gratuitous TNA, but the, the audience would teach me how to say it and what the word meant. So I would go around Holland and uh, shopkeepers and different people would say, hey, onkelofaluk, that means unbelievable. That's your word of the day. It was like, I really felt like um, I, I was adopted by this, this magical little country. And you were. And so it must be odd coming back here. Well, it's great that I have pretty much ignored Los Angeles for 20 years. So I can go around Los Angeles and I'm not mad anymore because I'm a different human being, you know. I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very happy in my life. Uh, my wife is amazing. And, you know, I just, uh, like I said, I, like that, that sitcom is uh, very, very long in my past. I want to talk to you about something else that's sensitive. Okay, great. People want to be the funniest comedian ever. Yeah. That should be your goal. Yeah. Steve Harvey had this great thing that he said once at this seminar that I put together in New York. He said, everybody's always out looking to get the development deal. Don't do that. Just concentrate on being the funniest person you can be. And he said, all I ever did, I never looked for a development deal. I never wanted a development yeah. deal. All I ever wanted to hear every day was just this one sentence that I would wait to hear at night. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome 
Steve Harvey. And I just concentrated on being a great comic, and I knew the rest would come. And that's what you've always tried. Yeah, to my do. high school baseball coach gave me the best advice. He said, you should never be trying to hit a home run. You should always be trying to hit a line drive. A home run should be the accident of a line drive. You should just always be trying to get solid wood on the ball. Smack the shit out of it. Not trying to knock it out. If you're a solid hitter, it's going to go out a large percentage of the time. I mean, all the great, uh, all the television stuff I ever got was because somebody saw me being a great comedian, you know? Like these people at the Dutch Television Network, uh, NBC in Montreal. Neil Brennan said on the podcast, he said, nothing has ever come to my career from not hanging out at a comedy club. I always hang out. That's what always yeah. normally happens. But one of the things that's the bane of a lot of comedians' existences is you watch television and you watch people and you want to be known as a great actor. A lot of comedians want to be known as a working actor. And what happens in our profession is that if you were to put a list together of all the comedians who are working comedians and you were to take away their income from stand-up and just give them their income from being an actor, most of them would be homeless. And so you're a guy who's made money as an actor, but you're a guy who's also gone through long stretches where then you made money as a stand-up, but then you went through long stretches where you made money as a host. I had a sitcom... I hosted my own late night talk show and I had a travel show. My goal was just to be a great comedian when I yeah. started. And you are a great comedian and people who see you, they know that. But I think one of the things I want you to talk about is, and maybe it's not true of you. So if it's not true of you, maybe you could speak to it about what you see out in the world and what you see with comedians. Whenever somebody's up for a show or something, I've been fortunate where I've had a lot of people book roles in sitcoms. This year has been a great year, and I'm very, very fortunate. I'm very humbled by it. But I'll always have the conversation, if I can, with an artist that's a really tough conversation, which is basically, do you want to continue to do what you've been doing or do you want to change the pattern? And if you want to change the pattern and you want to change your life and you want to be known as an actor, you're going to have to make some changes. It's like going to an AA meeting. I'm powerless over alcohol. Well, stand-ups who want to be an actor, they're powerless over their lifestyle. Many, many comedians, hundreds and hundreds of them that I know, do not spend every day working on the craft of acting, getting up in the morning, putting themselves on tape, reading scripts, writing, filming themselves, doing pieces, doing characters, pushing themselves to the limit. When they get offered an audition, they'll get the sides, which for those of you who don't know, those are the pages for the particular role that they're doing. They might look at them for a couple of hours here and there, and then they'll go in and they'll just think, okay, well, I write, produce, and direct my own stand-up. I'm going to go in here and I'm going to wow with these people. But they're going up against people who have basically been to Juilliard. 
And so I was hoping that you could speak to the mind of the artist who has been an actor and who has acted in things significantly and what the thought process is of why most comedians don't work tirelessly every day on being the greatest actor they can be and at night tirelessly working on being the best comedian they can be. Why do they neglect that so much and not put the time into that? Well, I think if you're a comedian, uh, you should definitely take some acting classes here and there, wherever you can. Um, you know, I had never acted a day in my life before I had that sitcom. And uh, I always joke that I didn't know you could use your hands for the first two episodes. <laughs> um, but if you had hired an acting coach with some of your money... I did. I did work, work with on, an acting coach leading up to it. They told you not to use your hands for the first two episodes? I'm joking. It's oh, just, it's just, it's, it's just a silly joke. If, if you look at the episodes, I'm using my hands. It's, oh, okay. It's, I'm, uh, I'm sorry. It's, uh, it's a joke, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> Often in comedy, we exaggerate. Um... The uh, and then when I went to New York, I I, I took um, acting classes there after the sitcom. Uh, I think definitely a comedian should. I mean, you want to you know strengthen your 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 tools where you can, but you should be working on everything. I'm from going from going to to London for many years. I'm old friends with Jimmy Carr, oh. and Jimmy Carr is one of the hardest working people in the business, and I've learned a lot from him. He has stays skinny. Brilliant. Always has new material. Brilliant comedian. And, you know, he told me years ago, you know, you don't go out and eat after the show. Don't go out and party and get drunk. Go home and work on your act. Write down what worked, what didn't work. Be working on your act constantly. So I was always a uh, hard-drinking, uh, fun-loving person i thought that was part of being a comedian and i had that feeling about you but you were still being more successful than all the other guys it's always easy to uh to i mean i love comedy more than anything so i mean even when i was partying i was keeping notes i was thinking of ideas but two years ago i stopped drinking i blacked out in philadelphia i fell off a bar stool and i got six stitches right there and I think probably one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. Like that sitcom not working out. Just, you know, things you think are bad at the time turn out to be the best things in your life. I stopped drinking two years ago. And today, I just realized this. Uh, or I thought of it this morning. Today is exactly one year since I stopped smoking cigarettes. So I uh, stopped drinking booze. And not only do I not stink like tobacco I, I i've never been stronger as a comedian i've got uh, clarity is a drug unto itself baby and um i've known jimmy carr for years and that philosophy to be implemented is a good way to do it he's one of the best ever and uh he's got a new he's got a, an hour on netflix and it's his jokes are just you know hard-hitting wonderful stuff brilliant all right I want to go way, way back, and I want you to take me through where you grew up, what your life was like, and what kind of socioeconomic situation you were in, and I want to know what your first inspiration was 
to get into this business? My family is originally from Washington, D.C. My father flew helicopters in the Vietnam War, and he volunteered to go fight in Vietnam. My dad loved stand-up comedy. I mean, I think, you know, we were middle-class economic level. Uh, my dad was an insurance salesman for many years. He had uh, uh, amazing charm. And uh, my parents got divorced. I think a lot of comedians come from broken homes. My dad could not stop fucking other women. But he had this magical charm. How did you know that? You just sensed it, you know? I mean, and then there was my mom and dad were always arguing. And so my mom was a... Uh, uh, was is a very strong Christian woman, and my dad was an atheist. And I, I learned when I was very young that if I was funny or did something silly, they would stop arguing for a minute. My dad loved stand-up comedy, and my dad had tons of comedy records. Richard Pryor's my dad's all-time favorite comedian. That's amazing what you just said, Tom. What? That is so powerful. You just said that. You... If I was funny and they would stop arguing for a minute. Yeah, yeah. So that was, uh, so that was like the, I mean, as a real small kid, I figured that out. And it, it was Israel and Palestine in my house constantly, this uh, never-ending uh, religious argument with my mom being this Jesus freak and my dad being an atheist and him fucking other women. But he had this magical power over women. And because he was just such a charming, funny well, that guy. That sounds familiar. Yeah. Uh, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, Barry. It's so odd you said that. I didn't know that about your father. But again, I've never talked to you about that. But he was a great guy. He was hilarious. And he loved stand-up comedy. So my dad had, and Pryor was his favorite. He had tons of Richard Pryor records. Um, Bob Newhart he loved. Bill Cosby. So I grew up listening to these comedy records. And I remember driving around with my dad. He had Pryor on cassette. And I didn't understand the sex jokes, but the way Pryor animated animals would always kill me. So my uncle did open mic night comedy in Washington, D.C. in 1978. I was 11 years old, and my dad took me to see my uncle do this open mic night. We walk into the front door. So 1978, there's probably five places in the United States that does stand-up comedy. Boston, New York, D.C., Chicago, San Francisco, L.A. So I'm, 12, I'm 11 years old. We walk into this, this bar, L. Brookman's was what it was called, and the comedian, I was wearing a Washington Redskins jacket, and the comedian on stage grabbed me. The entrance was by the stage. The comedian on stage grabs me, pulls me on stage, and interviews me like I'm the coach of the Washington Redskins. <laughs> I'm 11 years old, so I just gave bashful, dopey little kid one-word answers. Yes. No. But I'll never forget standing on that stage, seeing all those happy people with their heads thrown back in laughter and all the teeth in their mouth. And that moment changed my life forever. And I knew from that moment on what I wanted to do for a living. And so from 11 years old onward, I started keeping notebooks. And then I became a student of stand-up comedy. I'd get the TV guide. I would look through all the talk shows and Johnny Carson, see what nights they had comedians on. I would circle them. I would watch Saturday Night Live. Everything about comedy uh, was, was my tribe. That was me. That was my university. 
So my family moved to Orlando, Florida uh, when I was 12. Did you want to leave? For sunshine and Disney World? (laughs) I mean, I was open to the adventure, you know. And actually, we moved to a, a, a little town outside of Orlando called Oviedo. It was a small town. Everyone knew I wanted to be a comedian. So I got to do, I got to host all of the talent shows, all the pep rallies. Everyone knew I wanted to be a comedian. So I got to do it all. Uh, the pep rallies, host talent shows. And then I, when I was 17 years old, I took a fake ID to the local comedy club in Orlando and I started doing open mic nights. And I wasn't even old enough to be in the clubs. The first act that you wrote was from all the notebooks when you were 12, you called it together? You know what's great is, so I, I just got an apartment in Los Angeles eight months ago. So it was really interesting to get everything out of storage and see what I've been holding on to. You know, it was like a, a time capsule of outdated electronics, you know. But I've been keeping notebooks forever. And so I've got all these, these comedy notebooks. And... In my mom's attic, I've been uh, stuffing things for So I was there at Thanksgiving, and I got a lot of stuff out. And I found my comedy notebook from when I was 17 years old in my mom's attic. Do you want to hear a joke? Yes, I do. <laughs> I was just going to ask you what was one of the jokes. 17? Okay. So 1984, remember, the news was Africa is starving. That was, you know, Live Aid and all that, right? And so uh, 80s fashions, remember, Paisley was very popular back then. Okay. So this is a joke from my 17-year-old comedy notebook. I gave some clothes to charity. And the man at the charity shop said that these clothes were going to be sent to Africa. Oh, I can see some guy in Africa wearing my clothes going, gee, I hope this paisley vest doesn't clash with my genitals. (laughs) (laughs) That's not bad for 17. Not bad. When I found the notebook, I was like, oh, this is going to be terrifying. And then I was looking at it, I was like, hey, this, I was like, I was proud of my younger self. So you're hosting these shows, and what's your first big break? The club in Orlando where I started, they didn't have touring acts yet. Who were the local guys that became big stars? Was Daryl Nobody. There? No, no, he came a few years later. Daryl started at the same club I did. Billy Gardell started there. Mike and uh, Molly? Yeah. I remember Carrot Top coming around and the club shunning him because he had props. Because Carrot Top grew up in um, Cocoa Beach and his grandmother lives in Maitland. Scott Thompson, a great guy, uh, as is Billy and Daryl Hammond. But the club where I started, they didn't have touring headliners. So it was a very earnest little comedy scene. They would do comedian sketch, comedian, sketch, comedian, sketch. So they would do rehearsals on Monday nights and everybody was encouraged to bring sketches. So not only would you do your stand-up on the Friday and Saturday, you would get to act in a little sketch. I remember I had, uh, I wrote a, a character, Boy Tom. Boy George was really big mm-hmm. and I stapled a uh, twister playboard as a dress and I did some silly character of of Boy George. But I mean it was uh it was it was really kind of earnest and lovely. They just loved comedy. So when did things start to take off? How did they take off? Who saw you? What happened? 
nobody. I started going on the road. I graduated from high school at 18, and then I would drive anywhere in the United States for $150 to MC. I'll never forget, I drove from Orlando to Tulsa to MC for a week for $150. It probably cost me $200 to get there. And you slept in the car? I'll never forget, slept in the car on the way there, and I'll never forget crossing into the Tulsa city limits and thinking, man, I'm in show business. I mean, I could have been doing the Tonight Show. I was just thrilled, you know? Now, I moved to New York City when I was 20. I wasn't ready yet. I could only afford to live in Washington Heights. Um, it's like 1987 as crack was coming to the neighborhood. So you moved to New York. Were you working the comedy clubs there when you were younger? No, I mean, I, could, uh, I was trying to do sets, but I couldn't get on at the good clubs. Just the peripheral rooms, one-nighters in Long Island in New Jersey. And it was, um, I was starving. I had no money. And then I, I moved back to Florida for a year, licked my wounds. And then I moved to San Francisco, much lovelier place to develop as a comedian. And that's where I got great or started to develop and strong uh, material that I, I was proud of, you know? And what's interesting is New York and San Francisco, great comedy, both places. In San Francisco, there's more characters there, a lot of different kinds of characters. And who were some of the comedians who were big in San Francisco when you got well, not there? not big, but no, my scene in San Francisco was Greg Proops, Margaret Cho, Mark Marin, Patton Oswalt, Greg Barrett, Hedberg came a few years later, but Dana Gould, um, Dave Cross coming in and out, uh, just the, the, you know, the people who became uh, the greatest voices in American stand-up comedy. Did you do the San Francisco comedy competition? Three times. What happened? I made it to the top 10 twice, but not the top five. God, the San Francisco comedy competition was... Was a star maker once upon a time. It was incredible. Robin Williams came in second That's the right. first year of the San Francisco competition. So it was always the curse if you won it. <laughs> Apparently, the people who won the San Francisco competition never went on to be massive. But I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't believe in bad luck and superstition and shit like that. And so that's where you started cultivating and developing. And where did Comedy Central see you for the first time? San Francisco. For the show Two Drink Minimum. That's which... right. Two Drink Minimum was a show that looked like it was on film, but it wasn't. And the stage was this round stage, and it was sort of close to being in the round, but it wasn't in the round. But it was a great vehicle for stand-ups. It was a really unique-looking show. I love that show. That was great. So that, and then I had done two, remember MTV had uh, the Comedy Half Hours. Hosted by Mario Joyner. Yeah. So um, I did those MTV shows, and then I did the two-drink minimum. And tell me your first time you felt like you did stand-up on television where you were like, man. I'm doing this show, and this is it. This is my network television debut. What was it that you felt like your stand-up was showcased the way that you wanted it to be in a short format? Those Comedy Central, Two Drink Minimum, and those two uh, MTV Comedy Half Hours. Got it. Yeah, those, those were the first ones. I think I had done, you know, Evening at the Improv, and then there was a 
Comedy on the Road. Do you with remember John that? Biner? With John Biner. I did Comedy on the Road with Drew Carey in Acapulco. Isn't that amazing? What's amazing <laughs> about it is think about that and think about your career. Yeah. You did a show that normally was in the United States, but you, the guy who travels all over the world, right. something happened that ended up being the kind of thing that you wanted to do all your life. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, my last name is Rhodes. Uh, maybe it's no <laughs> accident that I've traveled everywhere. But I do think that comedy is um, really exciting now because of the diversity. I, I, I think it was really like dominated by straight male white voices. I mean, it's funny to be a straight white male saying this, but what I find really exciting now is that there's every kind of human flavor that's doing well in comedy and my favorite thing about comedy it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or gay or straight or black or white it's just are you funny and then those people those few people that can do that is really this uh like really tight little tribe or fraternity for you know there's a few petty little bitches here and there that are turds in the punch bowl but for the most part and especially and those are the ones usually that don't have talent the greatest comedians are the nicest people in the world. And it's really great. It's almost like being a, a, a fighter pilot or something. It's just this select talent that not many people have the ability to do. And I, I really love the way comedy is now. It's weird you say that. Like, I'm in this business. I would think that most of the greatest comedians that I know would look in the mirror when they were alone and say... I'm not the best person in the world. Really? Who do you know? You got to make more friends, Barry. You need to go away for 20 years like I did <laughs> and then come back. And then everything is bright and rosy. And then marry a woman from Holland. <laughs> Most great, great minds are tortured geniuses. And they are amazing with their friends. And they are incredible. But they're oftentimes misunderstood by other people. And well, The great uh, thing about, for me, getting older is that I'm not as controlled by my demons, you know? I mean, I, I did spend a lot of energy um, drinking heavily and partying. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, just, it's just great to evolve as a human being. And I think my comedy displays that beautifully and i think it's amazing the things that have happened to you you fell off a bar stool and cut your head and that fateful thing out of all the things that have happened in your life through drinking that thing was the thing that was okay you know i, I think it's time to stop boom i didn't go to one aa meeting I woke up the next day and I was like, man, I am done. And then that, you know, um, my father was killed by a drunk driver in 2009. My little sister died of breast cancer in 2011. My wife and I actually got married at my sister's hospital bedside because three days before we were going to get married, they said she's got 24 hours to live. And I was really close with my sister. I didn't want her to miss it. So... Um, Losing two people that I loved the most in life also helped me to wake up and to make some changes in my life. And then when I busted my head open, I was like, I, I definitely took it as a, uh, a signal to, uh, 
now is the time to be a different person. What's the closest you've come to taking a drink since you stopped? I haven't had no... I did the Edinburgh Comedy Festival two years ago, and somebody bought me, hey, you want a drink? You know, you're in a, you know, at a festival, and there's everybody's drinking, and it's loud, people talking. And I said, yeah, I'll take a Coke. So the guy comes back with a handful of drinks, and he, he, it was, he hands me, um, I took a sip, and it was a Jack and Coke. And I was like, oh, that's the last thing in the world I want. And I put it down. And it wasn't like, oh, man, alcohol. And I've never had that moment where, like, oh, man, I need a drink. I have no desire to drink. And it's too bad I have a, a extensive uh, knowledge of wine. I, I still love picking out bottles of wine for my wife. She doesn't drink very much. But um, cigarettes were more difficult. Cigarettes were uh, a, a bigger accomplishment. When your father was killed by a drunk driver, you were still a heavy drinker. You presumably taken many rides and gotten the car drunk. Yeah, but I never, uh, I mean, he, uh, my dad, being a heavy drinker also, also uh, taught me that only morons drive drunk and that you should have a friend or pay for a taxi. I mean, when I was younger, certainly there, there were times in my life where I, 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 I was uh, probably a little over the legal limit, but for the most part, I was pretty conscious of never getting behind the wheel when I was blottoed. I'll tell you one nice thing about my dad to bring it back to a happy thing. Richard Pryor, I got to take my dad to see Richard Pryor at the comedy store. And Pryor, it was, it was Pryor's birthday, I think his 50th or 60th. And Pryor was eaten up by MS. And he had to be lifted on the stage in the wheelchair and he could barely hold the microphone up. But my dad and I got to sit in the same room with uh, this great man and share molecules with him. So the fact that my dad's the reason I'm a comedian and um, Richard Pryor had a big part to do with that, you know, hard shit, man, losing people, it's like losing a parent, man, that punches a big hole in your life. And then my little sister never smoked, never drank, never did drugs. And for her to get cancer and not me, was probably one of the most unfair things in life. And um, I don't know, I, if those things hadn't have happened, maybe um, I wouldn't have uh, taken uh, the steps needed. It's just a beautiful story that you had the wedding in the hospital. I mean, yeah, I was married at Orlando Regional Medical Center. and uh, And for your wife, no matter what any woman tells you in the world, that's her day. Yeah. And I get emotional about these things because when I saw the picture of your wife, I felt really strong, wonderful things about you and about her. And now it just confirms it because this woman who you wait to have that day, that's your day, and she made it your sister's day. And, she, and I suggested it to her, and she was like, oh, my God, of course. So it wasn't like there wasn't a moment's hesitation. And I, it says so much about the kind of human being that she is, you know, that she would give up her, her big day. And, and it, it, was, it was not a dry eye in the house. Uh, my sister always wanted to see me settle down. And so uh, we, got, we were standing on one side of her bed. And my friend, who's a, um, a, a preacher or whatever, was on the other side of the bed. My sister clapped. 
and she said congratulations through her breathing mask, and it turned out to be the last word she ever spoke. Tom, Jesus. That's the greatest achievement I've ever had in my... The, the fact that I could give my sister a moment of joy at the end of her life when she was suffering so much from, the, from this cancer that was, was, was taking her out. Forget all the television, forget everything I've ever done as an entertainer. I think that is my greatest achievement in life. The fact that I bring my sister, you know. It's funny, I see like people like arguing with their, their siblings or people in their family and I always think in the back of my head, oh, they haven't had enough tragedy strike their family yet. They've still got um, little petty bullshit they're still working out. Wow, man, you had such an amazing <laughs> life. It's just unbelievable when you think about from the beginning of the time that we know the comedy and tragedy. It's been an unbelievable journey. It's incredible. Yeah, uh, I've been working on a book for the last three years. I'm about 90% there. And it's a, about my life um, as a comedian and, and traveling the world and um, all these amazing things that have happened to me. What are you going to name the book? Uh, I've got a few different options. I'm going to keep that one to myself. I'm going to call it Barry's Friend. Six Degrees of Separation. I'm going to mention some names. Oh. It could be a show. It could be any part of life. And tell me what comes to your mind. It could be one word. It could be a sentence, a story, anything like that. Okay? The late Robin Williams. Robin Williams would always pop up in San Francisco. And everybody was always, oh, Robin, did you see Robin? I never got to meet him. And I was in San Francisco for years. And that's, you know, I, I still spend a lot of time in San Francisco. The Throckmorton Theater in Mill Valley. Uh, Robin lived near there. And I play there once a year. It's one of the coolest gigs. Charlie Chaplin played there when he was a touring vaudeville act in the 1890s before he shot one inch of celluloid. So I met him there. He was hanging out. And... Uh, we're talking outside on the side of the theater and some peripheral older comedian of the Bay Area comes up and says, hey, Robin, I sent you this uh, email about such and such is having a benefit. Can you make it? And Robin goes, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I can't make it. Um, well, please, let me give you some money. And he pulled out this wad. I'd say it was like $300. I don't think he had a lot of singles in the middle. Please take this. I hope this is enough. And then after the show, there's an Italian restaurant in Mill Valley where everybody goes and eats after the show. So Mort Saul is with us uh, and, and Robin. And Robin was such a prince. He was so interested in my life in Amsterdam. Uh, maybe he knew the other people better and he already heard their stories or whatever. But he spent most of that dinner talking to me and my wife, Ashna, about Holland. He was fascinated about the, uh, the, the career I had there on television. And then he's asking her about Rotterdam, where she's from and everything. Twice during that dinner, two different women came up to him and said, Robin with cameras or their phones, Robin, sorry to bother you. Would you mind? The man's got his food on the table in front of him. He gets up. Oh my God, of course. And he takes a photo. He was so magnanimous. And then I'll never forget at the end of the night, uh, him walking across the street in Mill Valley, he shouts back across the street to me and my wife, give my regards to Rotterdam. He was just such a beautiful guy. 
And when he killed himself, the first thing I thought to myself was, I bet he got tired of people asking him for shit. Because I just saw a few hours of it. It was, Robin, can you help this? Robin, can you take a photo? I was on an elevator with Lou Reed in New York City 25 years ago. And I love Lou Reed so much, I didn't say a fucking word to him. Now he's dead. I wish I would have said something to him. Vietnam. I just went back to Vietnam last year and performed for the first time. Uh, well, I, it was the first time I had gone back since I did Viva Vietnam for Comedy Central. And there's comedy there now. There's a little room in Hanoi that does stand up. And I filmed a little short video. So I went, uh, Hanoi was my favorite place in Vietnam when I did this Comedy Central special. So I went back, I did this gig in Hanoi, and this 19-year-old kid opens the show. He's from Hanoi. His favorite comedian of, of all time is Eddie Murphy, Delirious. So he's only been on stand-up six months, but he delivers everything like Eddie Murphy and Delirious. <laughs> you know when you're on your scooter and your girl is on the back? Uh, the, the show that I've been trying to make, uh, that, uh, that I want to make. Is uh, a fish out of water in Vietnam. No, 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 where I'm like the Anthony Bourdain of comedy and go around the world and I um, uh, showcase a lot of these beautiful lunatics that pop up into my life traveling the world as a stand-up comedian. And, and there's all these great comedy scenes everywhere now. They, all over Scandinavia, all over Asia. I think that's wonderful because you get travel and comedy, and I think that would be great, show. And I think something tells me you're going to sell that within the next year. I'm working on that right now. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. All right. Louis C.K. One of the greatest comedians ever. Um, and, and, and like I said before about, you know, you got to study the masters. You know, his tenacity to stick with it as a performer. And then also what he did coming up with, because it, it, now I'm trying to create the next hour special. I think I'm about 75% there. That was one reason <clears throat> why I, I got a place in LA was to uh, finish my writing my next hour and to finish writing my book. He's the greatest guy to learn from that he tried to knock out a new special every year which he, you know, took George Carlin's example. and George Carlin did 14. Yeah. All we have to leave behind after we're dead is the art that we make in this life. And I, I, I think Louis, the, uh, the, the, the example that he said of that is because, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, a lot of people don't remember George Carlin. It's uh, the younger breed. The Anne Frank Museum. I had one of the greatest revelations in my career at the Anne Frank House. Like the first time I went to Amsterdam, when I went there, it's in a great, it's in one of the best neighborhoods in Amsterdam. It's called the Jordaan, spelled I've been by the there, J. And I love it. And you know, that bell and the, there's a church, the Wester Church, Vestekirk, is next door. There's all these She canabas. enjoyed the bell, the sound of the bell. And the, the, the fucking Nazis took the bell and melted it down, man. So you, it, unimaginable how shitty this girl had it. And the fact that they survived for so long. I, I, uh, uh, Amsterdam is a very Jewish city. Uh, their soccer team, Ajax, historically a Jewish team, 
They get anti-Semitic taunts when they play around Europe. And only Amsterdamers, when they say goodbye, they say mazel in Holland. Older Jewish friends in Holland told me the city was the worst place to hide. The ones that survived were went out to the country and hid in the countryside. So she had it. Uh, it's remarkable that she was able to hide out there for so long. So the first time I went to the Anne Frank house, I had this remarkable epiphany about show business. She's in this tiny little room, and on the wall, she had magazine photos of Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, and Queen Elizabeth. And I thought to myself, you know, as much as we complain about shitty things in show business and things that annoy us and all the shitty things, you have no idea somebody somewhere in the world who's suffering that you are alleviating some of their suffering and bullshit that they're going through. So, you know, when you get discouraged over a sitcom not working out or some other bullshit in the business, this, you know, uh, you have no idea whose life you're, you're making just a fraction better by doing what you're doing. Comes full circle from when you were eight years old. Yeah. Making your dad and mom laugh. Yeah. Through the conflict. Ray Charles. Hilarious. You know I opened up for Ray Charles, right? Yes, I've done a lot of research on your <laughs> You might have booked the gig, actually. <laughs> it was when I, after the sitcom, I lived in New York, 1998, 1999, and I got to open up for Ray Charles at this famous jazz club. It no longer exists. It was Tramps. Tramps. And the place is totally packed. I had to do 20 minutes. I don't know why uh, they ask comedians to open up for shows like this because nobody was there to see me and I'm on stage for 10 minutes and the entire audience is talking and I'm thinking this could not suck more I was wrong 12 minutes in the whole audience starts chanting Ray 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 <laughs> Ray Ray and I'm standing there and I am fucked I didn't know what to say I didn't know what to do and I I I couldn't leave the stage early I needed, you know, to finish my time respectably. So I stood there like a jackass. It seemed like an eternity. And finally, I thought of something to say. I went, people, people, people. <laughs> Ray is in the shower. <laughs> I didn't just walk off the street. Mr. Charles knows I'm here. He asked me to do a couple of minutes while he made himself pretty for you people. And don't worry, I'm not going to do one minute past my allotted time. Because I want to see Ray Charles just as bad as you do. And then like they laughed and they clapped and they shut up. And then they let me finish. And I walked off. And I swear to God, Ray Charles was standing on the side of the stage. And when I walked off the side of the stage, I'm walking past Mr. Charles. And he goes, am I pretty enough to go on yet? <laughs> True story. The Aspen Comedy Festival. 1995. For, H for HBO. That was incredible. That HBO comedy festival in Aspen, you know, it was Louis C.K., David Tell, me, Mitch Hedberg, powerhouses of comedy. Am I wrong, but did Gary Shandling host the Young Comedian special with Louis and Attell that year? Or am I yeah, it might be. It might have been. It was just, and here's this little, you know, 
magical village of Aspen. It snowed the whole time. It, uh, you know, it, it looked enchanting. And it was like a, a fun little uh, summer camp or seminar of, of, of great comedians who were all very young at the time. And then I remember at the Wheeler Opera House, they had a question and answer with George Carlin. I went and watched. And I believe it was Dana Gould got to interview him on the stage about comedy. And it was fantastic. And, you know, here's one of the all-time greats. I'm a young comedian with my little comedy festival badge. And, you know, I was there when the door opened. I couldn't wait to uh, sit at the feet of the master and gain some information. I remember Dana Gould, whoever uh, moderated the event, asking him if he smoked marijuana to come up with his material. And he said, I never smoke marijuana. When I write my material, I sit down and I write it and I write and I write. But after I've written everything, I will go have a few puffs on a marijuana cigarette and then it's punch up time. <laughs> but yeah, he, I think, I, hopefully that's still on um, YouTube. I would love to watch that. He dispersed brilliant advice. Patton Oswald. Mm, I love Patton. One of the greatest, um, you know, great thinker, a great, uh, uh, I, I just I, I adore Patton. I, I, I was lucky enough to be in San Francisco with him in the 90s. Um, there was a lot of intelligent, great comedy. I mean, that was the great thing about San Francisco back then. You got Greg Proops, Patton Oswalt, Mark Marin, Margaret Cho. Just the, 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 the group of comedians that were there just, you know, you ins inspired each other to do your best and to impress your friends with smart, intelligent material. And, you know, Patton's made a career out of that. I think it's like he was on that show, King of Queens. You know, I think uh, that is the way to do it. Like if you're getting hot as a comedian, don't take your own show. I think it was really smart that he was, you know, the, I mean, it, to be the second banana on a comedy, on a sitcom, that's the way to do it. When you're the star of a show, you have to carry the plot like an albatross from scene to scene. If you're the second banana on a sitcom, you walk in, punchline, 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 exit. And that's the way to do it. And, you know, I, I think he's been um, uh, a, a great inspiration for just the continuous, uh, intelligent career moves as well as intelligent comedy that he puts out i i when he, when he puts out a new uh special or cd i i can't wait to hear it it's a brilliant comedian and a brilliant actor it's the kind of thing where i actually could think of him saying well, are you a better actor or are you a better comedian and to me he's equally extraordinary at both jim gaffigan i had jim gaffigan on my podcast and he said the most brilliant thing he said you know, when I, when I hear someone talking shit about Carrot Top, I'm offended because I feel like comedians are my family. That's what Gaffigan said. And I thought, wow, you know, like that's how I feel. Like what I was saying before about the tribe. You know, like I see Patton Oswalt, it makes me proud to be a comedian. 
Like when I watched Jimmy Carr's new special the other night, it makes me proud to be in this tribe of the select few that can do this on a, 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 an elevated level. You know, a lot of people dream of being comedians and they try and do open mic nights and get into some little shitty club somewhere. To do it on a higher level and to be able to make television, to put out specials, to put out live recordings, uh, you know, it, like I, I see Patton, it, it makes me proud to be a comedian. Got it. Have you ever been watching a comedian who you love, who you respect, who you revere, and you just go to a comedy club or something and see them work or you maybe see their special and all of a sudden, 20 minutes in, one of your best bits that you love, they're doing a version of it. Has that ever happened to you? Not in a club, but I've seen jokes that were, I mean, a joke, anybody could write a joke. And that's the thing. There's so much comedy now. I, I, Mark Marin and I were talking about this. Marin pointed it out that someone had done something similar to his, and he was like, I know the guy didn't steal it. There's just so many comedians now. And that's the thing. Everybody's trying to come up with jokes on the same thing. And that's why you got to do things that are stories from your life, that uh, your story is what cannot be taken from you. But uh, I, um, I've, I've had a few bits that I thought were some of the greatest humorous thoughts I've ever invented pop up on um, some scripted television shows. And I know the desperation of the writer's room and somebody wanting to keep their job, they may have appropriated something to um, pad their little portfolio in the workplace. The Huffington Post. The Huffington Post uh, asked me to be a travel writer. And um, I've, I've, uh, I've read about four or five stories for them. The Huffington Post... Actually, this, this after I got married at my sister's hospital bedside, I went to Ireland the next week to do shows. And um, there was a, a big fist fight. It's a long story. I won't go in. But it, the story is on Huffington Post. Um, I, was, uh, I was angry at God after my sister died. And then... Uh, there was a, 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 a fight in a Supermax, which is a late-night hamburger place in Galway, uh, with a friend of mine. I ran in to help him. I haven't punched anyone in, in, in over 20 years. Uh, and I, I, I punched this guy. And then I went to Dublin that next weekend. And this Irish comedian, I told him the story about my sister dying of cancer, getting married at her hospital bedside, getting into the fight in... Um, Galway. And he said, uh, you know what I think, Tom? I think you wanted to punch God in the face and God wasn't available. And I, I think uh, that is precisely what happened. And I wrote a story about it for the Huffington Post and they chose it as one of the top 10 travel stories of 2011 or whatever that is. Uh, Huffington Post does not pay money to the contributors. And I was spending a lot of time on these stories that I was writing for the Huffington Post. I mean, so many people are impressed. I would go do interviews or uh, intelligent 
uh, people I would come into contact with, they were always so impressed that I have written for the Huffington Post. And how do you, how do you get to do something like that? Just people were like really uh, impressed by that. Um, the Huffington Post, I would rewrite these stories 10, 12 times because it's going to be on the internet forever. And you don't want it, you know, uh, some sour turd to be on the internet forever. Um, writing for the Huffington Post inspired me because I was spending so much time working on these stories that I should be spending this much time working on my own book that I've always wanted to write. So the Huffington Post asking me to write for them, me writing for them for a little while led to me writing my book, which I'm almost finished with. So um, you can say whatever you want about Huffington Post. They were great for me. James Brown. I also opened for James Brown. Uh, and James Brown, I listen to still more than my, my three perennials that I'm always listening to. James Brown, Van Morrison, Hank Williams. James Brown, you know, I grew up in the South. I started out on the Southern Circuits. I remember when he was in prison in Augusta, Georgia. I was doing a shitty one-nighter in Augusta, and the, the headlining comedian was a dick. So I drove my car to the edge of the prison where James Brown was. I sat on the hood of my car smoking cigarettes with James Brown's greatest hits cassette playing in my car. And I sat on my hood, and I, I remember just looking at that prison just like, wow, they're keeping this genius locked up, man. This genius guy invented his own genre, man. He's locked up like an animal over there. So I read his autobiography. Um, huge James Brown fan. I still listen to him loads to this day. And in 1995, 1996, I got to open for him at the Kanaktai Harbor Resort, which is two hours north of San Francisco on Clear Lake. It's like a, it's a Native American reservation place so i love james brown awesome lastly because it's current and relevant just any thoughts you have on gary shandling oh jesus now that was a tough one guys uh, shandling god how lovable was he as a comedian they always say likability is 90 percent. and yeah you know you know he had some self-loathing issues as his comedy was very much about it. I'm, I'm sure he was greatly bothered by the size of his lips and things like that, but that's what made him so lovable. And that's, that's what made other people feel good about their inconsistencies and um, uh, flaws. Uh, I, I, he was so lovable in loathing himself. I think that was the genius of his comedy. And you look at the clip, he was always dressed impeccably. Even when he did, you know, like, uh, you know, like, you know, like I said, I, I grew up studying the masters and watching the comedians going on talk shows. And I remember seeing, I remember when he first came onto my radar, I mean, the guy dressed impeccably. And you could tell that guy never, you know, he always put a lot of effort into what he was doing. It was always new, smart material, even if it was some silly shit about uh, going to his mom's house for Christmas and the dog shaking a lot. Um, he stood out from a lot of the bland bullshit that was happening at the time. And then, like we were talking about Louis C.K. before, about learning from other people's examples, 
The Gary Shandling Show, I loved that show. There was nothing like that when that came on. For him to turn to the camera and say, okay, I'm going to walk over to the other scene now, or like he would break that imaginary fourth wall and just talk to you at home. I remember as a teenager watching this going, this is the greatest comedy. Wow. You know, and I, I loved him. And then Larry Sanders show was even uh, it was one of my favorite comedic uh, television shows of all time. I, I, I still own all of them on DVD and uh, I, I watched all Jesus. And you talk about it in the cast. Rip Torn and uh, 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 who was Hank? What was Jeffrey his? Tambor. Jeffrey Tambor. But the 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 neuroticism of Gary Shandling as the host. I mean, that, that was like a a, a show. Uh, that was a television show made for people in show business. And I always heard rumors that certain elements of it was taken from from Johnny Carson. Uh, that he was kind of a, a a weirdo behind the scenes or whatever, and uh, one of my favorite television shows of all time, Gary Shandling. I don't know when this was, sometime last year. I Gary Shandling popped up on my Facebook, like the people you may know, and what I I fucking sent him a friend request. Didn't think anything of it. Six months goes by. On Christmas Day, this past Christmas, Gary Shandling accepted my friend request. And that was like, I don't know, it was like, like Bill Hicks, I became friends with him when I was a kid, and then I knew him throughout my career. I, I felt anointed. I felt anointed by the comedian that brought me on stage when I was 12. There's certain things have happened through my career, just... Where I just always felt like uh, I had been knighted or something. And Gary Shandling accepting my friend request on Christmas Day. I don't, was he lonely? Was he doing nothing on Christmas? Maybe. Who knows? I don't give a shit. He's one of my heroes. He accepted my friend request on Christmas Day. And since Christmas, I have been formulating in my head, it's March 30th today. For the past three months, I've been formulating in my head the message I was going to write to him that would be so charming and lovable, he would say yes to being on my podcast. So when he, uh, yeah, when he, when he died, I, I was like, yeah, I mean, you know, like I said about the comedy family, you, you definitely lost one of the pillars of the industry, but... Um, I'm I'm sorry that I I won't get to meet the guy, but uh, I'm his Facebook friend. Your proudest moment in show business, all of it, even the failures. As an older man, you can say that. When you're younger and you're having ups and downs and relationships not working out, uh, it's all about coming up with material. You know, my goal was to make comedy albums. Um, I've done three live CDs. I'm working on my fourth one now. I mean, you said what? Carlin did seventeen. I think doing the late night talk show in Amsterdam was pretty cool. Uh, my favorite thing is standing in different countries and crushing. And as exhilarating as it is to be a comedian, uh, to go to a different country, the adrenaline rush and the fireworks display of bursting 
endorphins and serotonin is even more intense to be able to go to London, to go to Hong Kong, go to Sydney. Because, you know, it, you know uh, San Francisco is different than New York. Florida is different than Phoenix. To go to different countries and be able to successfully crush an audience, uh, it, it's the greatest feeling in the world. So I don't know. I think my, my best moments are still ahead of me, but um, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to narrow it down. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel you to get to the next level. The sitcom, you know, uh, obviously was a frustrating setback in my career. Uh, if I'd have known then what I know now, I would have stayed with Comedy Central and tried to develop because they had no signature shows when I was on Comedy Central, you know, at the time. And they showed a lot of stand-up clips and there was nothing going on. Uh, and I loved Comedy Central uh, like family. And I, I still love them. I'm very proud that I was the first development deal in their history. Um, the sitcom, uh, you know, I always read about like, you know, stars of sitcoms throwing tantrums and kicking over the water cooler. Uh, and I, I've always been a really nice guy. I think my nice sweetness uh, let people uh, take advantage of me. And in, in, in retrospect, aside from punching anyone in the face who says uh, you're a fish out of water, I would have kicked over the water cooler uh, more often and thrown a few tantrums. But that setback led to my life in Europe and uh, a television career in Holland me having my own late night talk show, me uh, being a, a presenter on a travel show. I met my wife in Holland. I've got, uh, I'm, I'm friends with all these brilliant comedians sprinkled all over the globe. And I know uh, so many intricate, wonderful things about humanity and life on earth that I would not have known had that uh, shitty sitcom stayed on the air. So, uh, so I don't, I, I don't know. I guess I really don't have any regrets. I wish I wouldn't have drank so much, you know? Uh, I, I think I would probably be working on my seventh or eighth hour of material now. So, but, you know, whatever. But Gotta now, enjoy life. Now you're passing that lesson on to other people. Yeah. Last question. What advice do you have for the young comedian, writer, young person who's has a dollar and a dream and how to get to the next level and have the kind of career that you've had. Don't be so hard on yourself, kid. Stop beating yourself up. I think I always, you know, like a lot of comedians, you do great shows and you don't feel great about it. You're like, God, that one joke didn't work. Or why was that asshole at table three not laughing? Everybody else was laughing. I think the, I mean, I don't know, maybe the neuroticism and the self-hatred fuels a lot of the best comedy, but I think, um, I, I wish I wouldn't have been so hard on myself when I was really young, because it's a long journey, and, you know, um, they say life is short, fuck that, life's long, and uh, you're going to come back into contact with people many times, <laughs> and uh, try and enjoy the journey, don't be so hard on yourself, just keep trying to do the best that you can. And, and writing is everything. Writing is power and inventing ideas, inventing jokes. That's why they cut big checks to comedians because not everybody can come up with fucking great jokes. 
keep writing, keep making, uh, you know, I haven't even begun to look through all the notebooks I have for, um, for, uh, to mine gems from those things. Just keep inventing ideas, keep trying to come up with television show formats. And, um, if someone ever says to you, they have an idea where you're a fish out of water, punch him in the face. <laughs> Tom, I tell you, I, I, I'm stuttering here because when I asked you to be on the podcast, I didn't know what to expect. I was thinking to myself, I want it to be really, really great, but I want there to be moments where there's a level of uncomfortability, not in a bad way, but in like an exploratory way and also a level of happiness and enjoyment. And I want to tell you that when I walked in, I thought, you know, it was one of the few times where I thought, is it going to happen the way I want it to happen? Is it going to happen the way he wants it to happen? And I want to share with you, you just blew me away. It was so amazing. Your journey, your experiences, your stories, you're absolutely incredible. And you deserve the best that life has to offer. And thank you for coming. Thanks, Barry. I, I've always loved you to death, man. I mean, you, you're always a great guy to me. You know, you always, uh, uh, you know, showed me respect and gave me I'm 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 happy to be your friend. I'm I'm thrilled you invited me, and uh, yeah, I think this turned out very well. I'm gonna have to friend you on Facebook now. <laughs> I'll only accept it on Christmas. All right, I'll deal no, with kidding. that. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary "I Killed JFK." It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website IKilledJFK.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on Charles Templeton from Arlington, Texas. Congratulations, Charles. Also, I figure... I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right. Landing on J Lee underscore one, two, three. Heading reads a must listen. Five stars. And Jay Lee writes, Barry has assembled some truly great industry players to give us the real inside story on working in Hollywood. Barry has an easygoing style with his guests. Love the personal anecdotes. Subscribe. It's worth it. All right, Jay Lee, thank you so much. Congratulations. All right, as always, this has been another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name And put you on shoulders 
walk you to fame. You'll get all the money. Drive that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave. Down in the valley, a fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.